So let me go ahead and open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, as we once again behold you in your word, Father, as we once again come before you and see your salvific plan, not only for Israel, but for us, clearly revealed in Scripture, Lord, I pray that we would listen with a heart to obey. Lord, that we would be alert. And Lord, we would understand and realize that your instruction is not just for Israel, but is for us. And we pray this as we pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, having had a couple of weeks to work on this, the way that kind of works is you kind of do it and then you go, oh, I have more time and you go back and do it again. And you kind of go, oh, I have more time and you do it again. And um, as, as you work through that, the Spirit sort of lays different things on your heart. And, uh, and I really want to talk about Isaiah 53, not from the perspective just of Israel, but I want us to think, I'm, uh, not of 53, Isaiah 51, I want us to think about it in terms of ourselves. Because, you know, as I continue to look at what's going on around the world, and as I continue to look what's going on inside the United States, and then I come back to this text, more and more clearly I see us in the text. Right? More and more clearly we need to understand that the principles revealed in the text, the things that God says, I will judge you for this, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Right? Now again, as I emphasized, I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. So if you want to know, hey, today, tomorrow, next week, is this event, is that event? I don't have an answer to that. But Jesus, in the Olivet Discourse, talks about the end times, and he says, look, you're going to see these signs. And then he doesn't tell them, but hey, don't worry about it. He says, look, just... He warns them, when you see the sky turning red, you know the rain's coming. When you see the fig tree start to blossom, you know figs are coming. In the same way, you are to be able to discern these signs that he has given us. So the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't pay attention. It says we should. We just won't know the day or the hour, right? We won't know the specifics because... God has not necessarily revealed those details. So I want us to turn to chapter 51, and if your Bibles aren't open there, or your iPhones or whatever you got, um, either turn or scroll there. And I want to, there's a phrase used in the book of Revelation, and I've titled this chapter, Listen to Me, because we're going to see that phrase used over and over. And by the way, it's not just to Isaiah. If you go to the book of Revelation, you will see this phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You'll see that in chapter 2, verse 7, verse 11, verse 17, verse 29, chapter 3, verse 6, verse 13, and verse 22. Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. 
And by the way, in Revelation, when God is talking to them, is this prophetic? Is this eschatological material? Yes, it is. Right? He warns these churches, look, I'm going to tell you, you need to repent, or in the future, here's what I'm going to do to you. And in the same way, we're going to see this in Isaiah. The main idea of chapter 51 is that Israel needs to believe God and believe His Word. And by the way, that is as true for us as it is true for Israel. Right? God demands that we listen to Him. He says, listen to me, for example, in chapter 1, verse 7. He says, pay attention in verse 4, chapter 1, verse 4. He says, give ear, in verse 4, listen to this. In many different ways and using many different phrases, God says to Israel and to us, listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to what I'm telling you. And we we need to pay attention to that. And by the way, this book, the book of Isaiah, is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and we're told in the New Testament that it's not just for them, but this is given as an example to us. Right? The Holy Spirit has inspired every single word of this book. Oh. Yeah, they're in there. Sorry. Every single word in this book is given to the church by the Holy Spirit. So we need to pay attention. And the other thing I want to just, by way of introduction, remind us is that God expects us to trust Him in His faithfulness. God expects that we will trust Him. Trust and listening are linked. If we look and and we see the structure of this chapter, God will say, listen and trust. Those two ideas are linked. We listen to God's command. We listen to His instructions. We listen to His promises. And then we believe that what He says is not only true, but it is His absolutely perfect plan for us. Right? So we need to be reminded sometimes that when there are trials and tribulations in our lives, and we say, oh, well, God is good and God, you know, God is sovereign over this. Well, that's true, but that's inadequate. You understand that everything God does in your, does in your life isn't just good. It is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. In other words, from God's perspective, there is nothing that could happen differently that would be better than what is happening today. Now, does that mean we will always understand that plan? No. Right? And we're going to see in the book today, we're going to see a lot of things said, but we don't know the detail. Right? There are some details that we know because the book of Revelation is very detailed. (coughs) But there's some that we don't know. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2, it says, In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found faithful. As God's stewards, we are to be faithful. 
And then Jesus said this in Luke 18, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus is pondering what's he going to see when he comes back? What's he going to see in his church? Is he going to find faithfulness? Is he going to find people who will trust him no matter the circumstance? No matter what goes on. So let's get into the text. There's a lot to cover here. We're going to get through all of chapter 51, I hope. Um, Verses 1 through 3. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek Yahweh. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who brought you forth through labor pains. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. And her wilderness he will make like Eden. And her desert like the garden of Yahweh. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and a sound of melody. Wow. So I want you to note again, how does he start the text? Listen. Pay attention. God is going to speak. We should listen. And I want you to notice at the beginning, I want you to see God's call to the remnant. God's call to the faithful remnant of Israel. He says, you who seek Yahweh. Now, if you go to Israel today, frankly, you won't find very many who are seeking Yahweh, right? If you go to Israel today, most Jews are not Orthodox Jews. They're not Jews seeking Yahweh. Many of them don't even believe in Yahweh. (coughs) But he is speaking to the remnant, to those who will pursue Yahweh. And he says... Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. He's talking about their background. These are God's chosen ones. And he calls the remnant to pursue righteousness. Notice he says, you who pursue righteousness. Isaiah 50 verse 10. Who is among you that fears Yahweh, that listens to the voice of his servant? that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of Yahweh and rely on his God. And then in Isaiah, I'm sorry, Matthew, Jesus said this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So God is going to call the remnant, and part of that calling Part of what it means to be the remnant is a thirst for righteousness. That was true of Israel. It is true of us. Jesus, again, in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed who are, are those who, who think righteousness is a good idea, right? No, it says who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then you need to notice that the remnant will seek after Yahweh. God always calls His chosen ones to seek Him. You need to remember that. God always 
calls his chosen ones to seek him. This is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. If you call yourself a Christian and you aren't seeking after God with your whole heart, then you may question whether that is really true of you. Christians seek after Jesus above all. Maybe not perfectly, but he is the desire of our souls and the delight of our hearts. That is what it means to be a Christian. My ultimate satisfaction is not found in anything on this planet. Right? Do you understand that? Your ultimate satisfaction is not found in anything on this planet. Now, God has given us many great gifts. God gave me a wife and gave me children and has given me grandchildren. And he's given some of you great-grandchildren. And he's blessed you financially and we have comfort and all these things. And it's not wrong to enjoy them or delight in them, right? It says, blessed is the man who sees his children's children. So, and I go, amen to that. Amen, amen, right? Grandfathers say all amen. But that is not my ultimate delight. I can lose all of that, right? Ask Job. My ultimate delight, the one thing that will never disappoint, is Christ himself. And the remnant seeks after Yahweh. God's people seek God because they understand that God is their ultimate reward. He is their ultimate desire. They are looking for a heavenly city, not an earthly city. Hebrews 11, verse 9. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Talking about Abraham, verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. When Abraham obeys God and goes into the wilderness, ultimately Abraham is not looking for a city in the promised land. He's looking for a city built by God himself. Isaiah 55, verse 6. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Amos 5. For thus says Yahweh to the house of Israel, Seek me that you may live. <coughs> um, one of my favorite passages in all of the Psalms is in Psalm 27. David is speaking and he says this in verse 4. One thing I have asked from Yahweh that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of Yahweh and to inquire in his temple. Later in verse 8, he says this, On your behalf, my heart says, Seek my face. Your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. Your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. Jeremiah 29, You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Now, you've heard me say this in this class several times. God tells David in Psalm 27, verse 8, seek my face. That's a command to David. David, seek my face. David says, Lord, your face I will seek. So the question is how you do that, right? Do we make an image of God? Do we try and find some image that we can make and look at? No, that's, per, that's forbidden. 
right? God specifically says you won't do that. So what is God doing here? When God commands David to seek his face, where do we behold the face of God? We behold it in this book. This book is God revealed. And I've said this a lot of times. Don't read your Bible anymore. Instead, open up and read the words of this book and seek the face of the God of the book. Now that involves reading the book, okay? So don't go telling chance, Art said, don't read your Bibles. I'm just saying when we read them, we have a different attitude in our heart. I don't just read a book so I can read a book. I want to behold the face of God in the book, right? I want to be obedient to what he says in Psalm 27. And notice that he tells Israel to look to Abraham. Now, why would he say this? If you'll notice, he says, look to Abraham, your father. Why is he saying this? Because he wants to remind Israel of his faithfulness. He is going all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, which started the whole Israel thing. He's going back to the Abrahamic covenant, and he says, look, I was faithful to Abraham. I have given Abraham the Abrahamic covenant, and I will be faithful to it. God called Abram and Sarah to demonstrate his sovereignty. By the way, what made Abraham so good that God would pick him among all the peoples of the earth? Was he particularly powerful, particularly, had a lot of kids, particularly wealthy? No. God demonstrates his sovereignty in choosing Abraham from all the nations. One guy, I'm going to make a whole nation out of you. Not only that, my entire salvific plan for all of mankind is going to go through you, Abraham, and through your seed. And we know from Romans who's the seed of Abraham he's referring to? Jesus Christ. God chose Abraham. Why? Because God chose Abraham. Right? Abraham wasn't a large family. He wasn't prominent when, when God called him. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. Yahweh did not set his affection on you, nor chose you because you were more in number than all the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. See, God is faithful, and not that he works through those who deserve it, he works through those whom he chooses. Right? Abraham didn't deserve to be chosen. By the way, there's nobody in this room, myself included, who deserved to be chosen. None of you deserve to be chosen. I don't deserve to be chosen. And then God tested Abraham on multiple occasions, and Abraham faithfully obeyed God. He is our example. Genesis 15, verse 6. It says, Then he believed in Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was saved how? By faith. Abraham was not only saved by faith, he was saved by faith in the Messiah, in the promised one, looking forward to the cross. We are saved looking back at the cross. Genesis 22, you all remember this. Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares Yahweh, 
because you have done this thing and you have not spared your son, your only one. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand on which the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of his enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have listened to my voice. He's talking about saying this after he calls Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Right? And by the way, when God calls Abraham, Abraham initially offers up another option, right? Hey, you can, you can bless me through my heir over here. And God goes, no, nah, I ain't doing that. I'm going to bless you through, the, through your own child from Sarah. And Abraham's like, that's going to be a tough one, right? Sarah thought it was even tougher than Abraham thought it was tough, right? But in fact, that's what God did. He said, I'm going to bless you through the son of her, who is Isaac. And then he says, now I want you to go kill Isaac. Sacrifice him to me. Now, if you're Abraham, you go, well, I don't think I'm having a second one here, right? But Abraham believed God. Abraham, we're told in Hebrews, believed if necessary, he'd raise him from the dead. Right? In other words, Abraham didn't trust on anything that made sense to us. Abraham trusted on God exclusively, even when he couldn't see how God was going to do it. You can go to... Uh, and let, let me go back to the beginning of this story in verse 8. And Abraham said, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked together, and they came to the place which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac on the altar on top of the wood. The thing I want you to notice is, God, is Abraham says, look, God will provide the sacrifice. That is an eschatological passage. Does God provide the sacrifice? By the way, it's interesting. If you look back at the history, at the place this happens, Mount Moriah, right, winds up being in where? Jerusalem. Remember David in the threshing floor when he, when he, he did the uh, census of Israel? and God brings judgment, and David goes to the threshing floor, that's the same place. And ultimately, um, hundreds of years later, God is going to provide a sacrifice in the exact same place. And that sacrifice will be Jesus Christ, His Son. Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and who had received the promises, was offering up his only son to whom he said, In Isaac your seed shall be called. And then here's, here's um, Abraham's thinking. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Right? God promises the covenant that I gave you in chapter 12 and chapter 15 is going to go through Isaac. Hebrews 11, even by faith, Ab Sarah herself received the ability to conceive by faith. They believed, they trusted in what Yahweh said. 
And God will ultimately fulfill all his promises to Abraham. Now, does that matter to you? Yes, it does. Right? Because how are you saved? In the seed of Abraham. You're saved by faith in the seed of Abraham. Yahweh will comfort Zion. He will comfort her waste places. All the wilderness he will make like Eden. He's talking here about when Messiah comes back. When Jesus returns, he is going to turn the promised land into Eden again. It will be just like Eden. Look at the text. Look what it says. The waste places, the desert. They will be like Eden. The desert like the garden of Yahweh. <coughs> now, I never saw Eden. But I will. I'll get to see that. By the way, for all you guys who are wondering, so will you. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when Jesus comes back, guess who comes with Him? We do. Right? Look at Revelation 19 if you don't believe me. Jesus will be the great comforter of Israel as their righteous king. And if you look at Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is the promised seed of Abraham. And just again, in, in Galatians 3.16, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to, his, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. There's Paul's commentary on this text. And um, in the interest of time, you can look at Zephaniah chapter 3, and it will talk about what Israel, what the promised land will look like when King Messiah comes back. Um, I'll just read you a little from the passage. He says, Sing for joy, O daughter of Zion. Make a loud shout. Be glad and exult in your heart. Later, he says, The King of Israel, Yahweh, will be in your midst. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, the mighty one who will save. Down in verse 20, indeed, I will give you a name and praise among all the peoples of the earth. Isaiah 35, verse 1, And the wilderness and the desert will be delighted, and the air above will rejoice and flourish like the crocus. When God comes back, when Christ comes back, the curse on this planet will be lifted. Right? The curse will be lifted. We need to understand that's going to affect all of us, because, oh, by the way, we will participate in the millennial kingdom, right? No more weeds. My wife will rejoice to find out that, well, there will be snakes, but they won't be poisonous and won't bite, right? The lion will lay down with the lamb. You're familiar with all those passages. The curse will be ended. No more death, right? All the elements of the curse, the thorns, the thistles, all gone. Now, the next point I want to make is we believe in God's Savior and God's Word. Look at verses 4 through 8. Starts off with that phrase again, Pay attention to me, O my people, and give ear to me, O my nation. 
For a law will go forth from me, and I will set my justice for a light of the peoples. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth, and my arms will, will judge the peoples. The coastlands will hope in me, and for my arm they will wait expectantly. Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. The sky will vanish like smoke and the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will not be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them like a garment, and the grub will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Wow. He is not just talking about Israel. He is giving eschatological talk about the future and the destiny for our planet. Now, I told you at the beginning of this, as part of the introduction, that I look around at all what's going on, right? And I look around and I see how evil is being perpetuated really across the globe. And, and to be honest, America is the largest exporter of depravity in the world, right? We are the largest exporter of depravity. You can look at the media, Hollywood and the media right? Who produces almost all the movies and all the junk and all the series and all that other junk? That comes from America, right? And you look at all these movements and we're not only participating, we're pressuring countries that don't do this, that you need to do this. You need to join in our evil. Yeah, okay. So first of all, God started us off, once again, pay attention, and he says he will establish his righteousness before the peoples. There is going to come a time when he's going to put an end to this. God calls his nation, God tells his nation to pay attention. In the original, to be fully alert and listen attentively. And to give attention to his ear. Again, that word in the original is to listen, to pay attention to heed. He does this because he wants them to know that one day he's going to fix all the wrong. He will bring righteousness. No people on earth will be able to fix what is wrong. They will not be able to do it. No person is going to be able to do it. No party is going to be able to do it. Only the servant of Yahweh who we've already read about in three servant songs, will be able to do it. Isaiah 42.4, He will not be faint or crushed until he has established justice on the earth and the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. You need to understand, and, and I say that because I look around us today and I believe it's near. Right? I believe it's near. We see in Isaiah... And if you look at the other, many of the other prophetic books, God does not tolerate evil forever. Right? He's not going to, and that's what the text is telling us. 
He's not going to tolerate it forever. Now you may say, how long? Are we talking months here, years here, decades here? I don't know. Again, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I know it's near. And when God says, pay attention, and he describes what he's going to do, I pay attention. Revelation 19, verse 5. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. God's mercy and judgment will be manifest in those who reject him and those who bow the knee. Right, And we need to understand, and we've seen this before, everybody will bow the knee. Isaiah 51, verse 5, in there he says, My salvation has come forth, my arm will judge the peoples. That's a reference to Christ. He will judge the peoples. Romans 11, verse 22, Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise also you also will be cut off. What Paul is saying is, look, behold the kindness and severity of God. On one hand, we see the remnant of Israel, and God is calling them, and he's going to put them in Eden again, and he's going to spare them, and he's going to judge the nations. On the other hand, the severity of God. The severity of God. And if we were to do a verse-by-verse verse through the book of Revelation, you will see just how severe the severity of God is going to be. Right? You do not want to be here for the tribulation. Right? You do not want to be here for the tribulation. Let me just sec here. Okay. Oh, by the way, you won't. So if you were worried about that, don't. But then he has this warning or this encouragement. He says, do not fear worldly circumstances. Do not fear worldly circumstances. Notice how God refers to people as those who know, who know righteousness, a people whose heart is the law. That is an excellent description of what a believer is. That is, that is the perfect description of a believer. It is somebody who knows righteousness and whose heart is God's law. I mean, that is true for you, right? I hope all of you grieve over your sin. Right? Now, there's no one in this room who doesn't sin, myself included. But it should grieve us every time that we fail to obey God's law. Right? We fail to be faithful. And notice he says, do not repair the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. So the word reproach in the original is open disrespect for a person, or to taunt, or to disgrace, or to shame them. And by the way, that's exactly what the culture is trying to do to Christians. Is it not? Are you not paying attention? Right? You, you can't help but see it. Right? You can't help but see it. Our culture no longer embraces Christianity. It hates it. And it's going to get worse. It isn't going to get better. Okay? I don't care who you vote for in, in, in uh, next November. 
right? And I encourage you all to vote. I'm not saying don't do that, but it isn't going to make a difference. We do the right thing because we want to be good citizens and we do it in obedient and faithfulness to God. But in the end, God is going to do what God is going to do. And the word reviling there means aggravation by deriding or mocking, abuse or reviling words. These are very strong words in the Hebrew. They're talking about a culture that can't stand you. It's not that they just don't like you, they're going to tolerate you. They can't stand you. Right? That supposedly tolerance is the one virtue in our culture. Coexist. Let me see that little bumper sticker. Coexist. That's true for everybody except Christians. We hate you. Right? By the way, our, our, do we believe in a very exclusive gospel? Yes. Yeah, we do. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Let's see. A, a few people come to the... No, some come to the Father. Uh, no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. We preach a gospel that you either believe in Jesus Christ or you're going to hell, and they don't like it. They don't like it, and they're never going to like it. Okay, so let's get over it. But remember this, Romans 8.31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? That's a rhetorical question, right? Would you rather have God for you than the whole world against you? Yeah, I would. And he says, we must accept that we will face persecution. I believe that God is using this very study to help prepare you for that persecution that's coming. He is using it in my life to help me to prepare myself for the persecution that's coming. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. By the way, that phrase there, all, what does that word mean? All. I love you Greek scholars. It means all. Right? You need to start preparing your heart for the persecution that's coming. Parents, prepare your children. Grandparents, Work with your children to prepare your grandchildren. It's coming. Right? It's coming. We already see it, and it's going to get worse. It isn't going to get better. Romans 1, we'll talk about that at the end. And then he says, Awake, people of Yahweh. Look at this, starting in verse 9. Awake! Awake! Put on strength, O arm of Yahweh. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who chopped Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of a great heap, who made the depths of the sea a pathway for the redeemed to cross over, as the ransomed of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, and everlasting gladness will be on their, uh, will be on their heads. And they will obtain joy and gladness, and their sour and sighing will flee away. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, and the son of man who is made like grass? What have you forgotten, oh, I'm sorry, that you have forgotten Yahweh your maker, 
who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, that you tremble and dread continually all day long because of the wrath of the one who brings distress, as he makes ready to bring ruin. But where is the wrath of the one who brings distress? The one in chains will soon be set free and will not die in the pit, nor will his beard be lacking, nor his bread be lacking. For I am Yahweh your God, yeah, sorry about that, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens, to found the earth, and to say to Zion, you are my people. What an incredible passage. I love this passage. I love these verses. Awake, awake, put on strength. First of all, God says, look, God's ancient power is going to be seen. God has been acting throughout history. Let me read you a quote from one of the commentators. He said, the past is not the limit of his power, but the pattern of its ongoing expression. As in days of old, sometimes it feels to us as though God has dozed off. After all, we do. Suddenly we remember that we have forgotten. Drop everything and rush to make amends. But God never fails. He has, however, built waiting into our experience of him. His point is simply this. When we read these passages, we wonder, where is God? We look around at the world around us and we go, man, where is God? Where is he in this? Right? Has he forgotten? Is he not fulfilling his promises? Well, he is, but we need to understand that he has built waiting into his expectations. And we're told in the New Testament that God patiently waits desiring all men to be saved. Why has Jesus not come back yet? Ah, there's still some that need to be saved. There's still some elect out there that you need to go share the gospel with. They'll repent. They'll get saved. And if we can get all those elect saved, when the last one who is to be saved before the tribulation, the last one gets saved, you're gone. Right, The rapture happens, we're in heaven, then the tribulation starts. And you need to understand, during the tribulation, are there elect? Yeah, there's millions and millions of them. Not only of Israel, which is one-third of them are elect, but there's going to be millions and millions of Gentiles saved during the tribulation. God who delivered in the past will deliver again. That's the point. That's what he's saying. God delivered in the past, he's going to do it again. God delivered Israel from their past enemies, including Egypt during the Exodus. He's using figurative language here. Notice how he refers to Rahab. He's talking about Egypt. We saw that earlier in chapter 30, verse 7, where it says, Even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty, therefore I have called her Rahab, who has ceased. So this is a figurative term to be used for Egypt, and he's reminding them what God did to Egypt. God, remember those plagues? 
right? I'll tell you, the, the real estate value in Egypt went way down after the 10th plague. By the time it was way down, not a good place to go. And then he, there, there is some debate. He talks about the dragon. What is the dragon? Um, in Isaiah, he's talking, I believe, about a mythical monstrosity. The ancient uh, Canaan literature told about a sea dragon, an evil force uh, who's, who was a, uh, slain by a god hero. And Isaiah is drawing on this language to compare that to the God hero who's delivered them. God reminds us that it was not Israel that destroyed Egypt. Who destroyed Egypt? God did. God destroyed Egypt. And as in the past, God will deliver Israel in the future, verse 11. Right? So the ransom of Israel will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion. Right? You can look at 35, Isaiah 35, verse 10. <coughs> it says, The ransom of Yahweh will return and come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They will attain delight and gladness, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Sounds almost exactly what we're like what we're reading in chapter 51. God made a promise. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. God is telling Israel, remember where you came from. I called one man, Abraham, and I made him a nation. And I made a covenant with Abraham. And that was a conditional or unconditional covenant. Abrahamic covenant. Unconditional. Unconditional covenant, right? Remember in chapter 15, he's going to cut a covenant with Israel. So Abraham cuts all the animals in half, lays them out, and their God and Abraham are going to walk between them. And then what does God do? He knocks Abraham out, basically, drugs Abraham. And who walks between the animal parts? God does by himself. God does by himself. He cut a covenant with Israel. He cut the Abrahamic covenant. And in him, he promised that he would bless the seed of Abraham. He would make him a nation. He would give them the promised land. And they would dwell there in peace. He would give them all the promised land. And not only that, all of the nations will be blessed through Abraham. That has not happened yet. Right? It has not happened. Israel does not own the promised land. Have you noticed? Like Gaza and the West Bank and stuff like that. Lebanon, Jordan. That will all one day be Israel. And are they dwelling in peace today? Is there a lot of joy and gladness rejoicing in Israel today? I don't think so. And the nations have not been judged and been saved through the seed of Abraham yet. Not all of them. Now every tribe and tongue, all of them have heard that there's going to be a day when God will either save you or God will judge you. Right? 
You will either bow the knee before him in obedience and repentance, or you will bow the knee before him in judgment. That's coming. Isaiah 52, verse 8, For the voice of your watchmen lift up their voices, they shout joyfully together, for they will see with their own eyes when Yahweh returns to Zion. One day, Israel will see with their own eyes when God physically in open manifestation, returns to Zion. They will see him. The whole world will see him. And then ultimately, this is, you guys, how many of you guys highlight your Bible? My wife even digitally highlights her digital stuff. You can do that if you didn't know that. Right? This is a passage you need to highlight up. Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a, vo a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and there will no longer be any mourning or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. Now I try and imagine that a lot. I try to think about what that will look like, and I can't yet. I'm working on it, but I still can't. To think that the creator of the universe, it says here, will dwell among us. It's the idea here, he's going to dwell among us like Everybody else, I mean, we're going to just be in his presence. He's not often some place where we never get to see him. In fact, notice the intimacy. He's going to personally wipe away every tear from your eyes. And, and you know, I've said this before. When my wife, when my little kids, you know, were, were young and they'd run and scrape their knee or whatever, or one hit the other and one would come crying, to watch my wife tenderly comfort them and wipe away their tears and, and fix their little scrape, that was, that was one of the tenderest things I think we can see, right? Dads, when you, when you see your wife do that, they have, a, they have an ability to do that we just don't have, right? I would say I'll shut up, quick crime, be tough, you know? Not, not necessarily compassionate, right? That's not how Lorraine dealt with my kids. And, and the point of that is, this text harbors to that kind of intimate compassion and tenderness. God himself is going to do this to everybody who is with him. And I want you to notice God is the comforter of Israel and us. He is not asleep. He hears our hearts. He answers our need. He says this, I am he who comforts you. He is able to breathe life into despairing people like us. He admonishes, admonishes us for being fearfully over-impressed with the human factor in the way reality unfolds. He's reminding us, don't look around at your circumstances. 
Don't look around at the evil around you and be impressed with it. It is so, because it's so ubiquitous, and we are becoming such a minority, and it's, and it's so blatant, so in your face. But God says, don't be impressed with that. And it says, he says, where is the wrath of the oppressor? I am going to deal with them. Don't be impressed. Don't be fearful. Don't be influenced. I will crush them. He says, do not fear man. Psalm 118.6, Yahweh is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Good question. What's the answer to that question? I mean, they can kill you, but that's it. That's all they can do. And for us, that is not the worst thing that can happen. Was there a question back there? That is the Trinity. The answer to that question is yes. We know from John 17, which is, I think, the most spectacular chapter in Scripture, that Jesus says, Father, I and me, and you and you and me, I and you, and them and us. Well, wait a minute here. Jesus is talking about something that is, to me, incomprehensible. He is saying, look, Father, there is this relationship in the Trinity here. I and me, you and me, I and you, and then they're going to be in us. Well, you mean I'm going to somehow share the intimacy that exists within the Trinity? Yes. How is that going to be? I have no idea. I cannot comprehend the Trinity. I cannot comprehend the infinite, incomprehensible love that exists within the Trinity, but I will experience it. You will experience it. What can man do to you? I love this, this story, and you're all familiar with it, but I can't help it. Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to respond to you with an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to save us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will save us out of your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods and we will not worship the dumb, stupid, golden image you have set up. I added a couple words there. <laughs> what does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understand? Can God deliver them from the furnace? He could. But they understand he might not. He might not. Either way, we're going to be faithful to him. And if that means getting thrown in the furnace, so be it. By the way, do they get thrown in the furnace? Yes, they do. But it didn't turn out the way Nebuchadnezzar thought it would. Oh. Interestingly enough, by the way, when Nebuchadnezzar looks in the furnace, what does he see? Four people. How many do you throw in? Who's the fourth one? Jesus Christ. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... God may deliver us, and he may not. We may get martyred, and we may not. 
but he can if he wants. And don't forget the majesty of God. Look in verse 13. Have you forgotten Yahweh, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, that you tremble in dread continually all day long because of the wrath of he of the one who brings distress? Do you hear his plea? He says, have you forgotten me? You're all stressed out and anxious about what's going on because you have forgotten me. I created the whole the whole universe. And he says, and by the way, I'm going to bring wrath on them and they can do whatever they want to you, but it's not going to be anything like the wrath God is going to pour out on them because that wrath will be eternal. That wrath will be eternal. God reminds them of all his power and all he has done. He's creator. He brings the oppressor to ruin. And he will set the oppressor free. The opp I'm sorry, the oppressed free. Look at verses 14 and 15. The one in chains will soon be set free and will not die in the pit, nor will his bread be lacking. Why? How do you know? Because I am Yahweh, your God. Right? How do we know this? How do we know that in the end you'll never be abandoned? Because Yahweh, your God, says so. Right? Philippians 1, it says this in verse 27. Only live your lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about your circumstances, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one mind, contending together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sakes not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. I honestly think Paul is reading Isaiah 51 as he pens this. He says, look, you know, why are you worried about, why are you alarmed by your opponents? It's a sign of destruction. Go back to Isaiah 51 and look what's going to happen to them. We don't need to be alarmed by them. Don't be impressed. Don't be intimidated. They are of their father, the devil, and that's who they're going to follow. Period. Right? Thanks. And remember this, God's gracious election will stand. See it in verse 16? I have put my words in your mouth and have covered you with the shadow of my hand to establish the heavens. You are my people. Who is he talking to there? He's talking to Israel, but he's also talking to you. You are his people. Is that not true? Are you not the chosen ones? What does the word church mean in, in Greek? 
the called out ones. Micah 3.6, For I, Yahweh, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Because I'll never be unfaithful. Hosea 1, starting in uh, verse 10, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And it will be that in the place where I said to them, You are not my people, it will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God, and the sons of Judah and the sons of Israel will be gathered together, for they will set themselves one head, and they will go up from the land, for great will be the day of Jezreel. There's going to be a day when Israel is going to go through the crucible. It's called the tribulation. But in the end, their Messiah... Yahweh himself will come back and he will deliver them all and he will deliver us. And then briefly, just in closing here, I want to look at verses 17 through 23. Yahweh's wrath is going to bring both repentance and purification. Awake, awake. Awake yourself, awake yourself. Arise, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of Yahweh the cup of his wrath, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to the dregs. There is none to guide her among all the sons she has borne, nor is there one to take hold of her by the hand among all the sons she has reared. There isn't going to be anybody in Israel to deliver Israel. Catch that? These two things have befallen you. Who will console you? The devastation and destruction, famine and sword? How shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie helpless at the head of every street, like an antelope in a net, full of the wrath of Yahweh, the rebuke of your God. Therefore, now listen to this, you afflicted, who, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, Yahweh, even your God, who contends for his people, behold, I have taken out of the hand the cup of reeling, the chalice of my wrath, you will never drink again. I will set it into the hand of those who cause you grief, who have said, lie down that we may walk over you. You have set your own back down like the ground, like the street to those who walk over it. What on earth is going on here? God is saying, look, Israel, I am going to enter into wrath with you. This passage is one of the clearest day of the Lord passages. Notice how it refers to it. He says, um, the, the hand uh, of Yahweh, the cup of his wrath, the chalice of reeling, you have drained to its dregs. Wow, God is going to fully pour out his wrath on Israel. And he, he says, you're going to be like you're drunk, but there won't be any wine involved. They're going to be reeling. He's talking about his wrath that he is going to pour out for the millennia of idolatry of Israel and their unrepentance. And by the way, when will that happen? Do we have any idea when that's going to happen? Yeah, we do. Right? When is that going to happen? I don't know, a seven-year period called the tribulation. 
Go to Daniel chapter 9. It is referred to as the 70th week of Daniel. For seven years, God is going to enter judgment with Israel. Yeah, there's lots of phrases for it. Thank you. The point is, God is going to enter into judgment with Israel. And he's going to pour out the cup of his wrath. But at the end, what does it say? Is he going to utterly destroy them? No, he's going to use that to purify them. And we know from Ezekiel that two-thirds of them will be destroyed. But one-third will live. We need to understand this wrath is from God himself. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. He says in Isaiah 29, Bind yourselves and be blind. Bind yourselves and be blind. They became drunk, but not with wine. They stagger. They shut their eyes. Jeremiah 25 says God is going to enter into judgment with them. He's going to pour out their wrath. By the way, if somebody tries to tell you the church will be around during the tribulation, here's what they don't understand. The tribulation isn't about the church. Tribulation is not about the church. The 70th week of Daniel, it says clearly in Daniel 9, is for God's talking to Daniel. He says, for you and your people and your holy city, Jerusalem. Yeah. So the point is, the church is not here during the tribulation. Where are you? Right? Go to chapter 4 of Revelation. And I've said this before, but in case you need reminding, in chapter 1 of Revelation, we see a, a view of heaven, right? It's almost exactly the same thing Isaiah saw in chapter 6. Almost exactly. But then when I get to chapter 4, there's something new. When we see chapter 4 and it says, these are the things that will come. So we get an outline, and in chapter 4 it says, these are the things that are going to come now. In other words, hey, John, this hasn't happened yet, but it's coming. And we get another view of heaven. And we see all the same characters up there. But we see somebody new. Who's the somebody new? 24 elders. They represent the church. That's you. They represent you. You are in that passage. Particularly. By name. That's why I love to read that. I love to, because I'm in it. And I try and imagine, what. okay, what, what am I seeing now? I can't imagine. Right? He's going to pour out his wrath, and then he's going to purify them, and then he's going to pour out his wrath on their enemies. And you can look at those passages I've given you there. I've given you the references. As homework, go look those up when you go home today. Right? Read them. God will deliver Israel just as he promised Abraham at the beginning of the chapter. At the very beginning of the chapter, he says, Abraham, look to Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham. At the end of the chapter, he says, I'm going to be faithful to what I said to Abraham. Right? So let's briefly talk about some implications. And, and, and as an elder here, I, I just want to exhort you to listen to the words of Jesus here. Mark 13, See to it. Kind of like listen. Right? Remember all those listen? See to it. Keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. Jesus is saying, you better be alert, because I'm coming. 
going to happen. This is not fiction. We're reading history that hasn't happened. Luke 21, Jesus says this, And he told them a parable, Behold the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they put forth their leaves, you will see it for yourselves and know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, this is what Jesus said, when you see all the stuff happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life, and that day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon those who inhabit the face of all the earth. But keep on the alert at all times, praying earnestly that you may have strength to escape these things that are about to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Now he is speaking to Israel, and he's saying, look, Israel, you better be alert because it's coming. And I'm going to come, and when I do... Right? He says, my words will not pass away, and it's going to be tough for you, Israel. It's going to be tough. But Jesus reminds Israel, and he reminds us to be alert and anticipate his coming. You know, I think I've told you this, and actually, ah, thank you. Um, he has told us that he's going to come. And we need to understand God will not overlook idolatry in any nation. Now, we've seen that throughout the book, right? You guys have been here. Have we seen God's judgment on Tyre, Sidon, all those other places? And he, how many times in this eschatological part have we seen him say, and the nations, and the nations, and the nations? Right? Let me just remind you of something I've told you before. Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, both his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being without being understood to what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and said a man could become a woman, and they exchanged the glory, I added that, and they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That is not Isaiah. That is New Testament stuff. That is Romans chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth. That is our culture today. That is America. Right? And it is my personal opinion, I'm not a prophet, that America is now under this judgment. I believe, and by the way, when you read the rest of the passage, it talks about, here's what the wrath looks like. In case you're wondering what my wrath's going to look like, 
You're going to have men with men, women with women, and in the end, I'm going to give them over to a depraved mind, to an unfit mind, it says in the LSB. They're going to have an unfit mind. In other words, their mind will no longer think in terms of any morality. They're disconnected from morality. Their minds can't even do it. I look around and go, there we are. Let me close with Revelation 14, verse 9. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage, and he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Forever. Okay, now that's, a, that's talking about in the tribulation and those who follow the mark of the beast. But those are unbelievers. They all follow the mark of the beast. Unbelievers today, if they could get the mark of the beast, they would. And when you read that, the wording in there, if you just go in the original, it's like God is trying to pound you over the head with the, the, wrath, the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength in the cup of his rage. It, man, those are strong words. God is going to pour out his fury, and it will be an eternal fury, and it will be characterized by fire and brimstone in the presence of the Lamb. Don't fear the world. Don't fear your circumstances. I don't care if it's medical. I don't care what it is. Don't distress. Remember Yahweh. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we rejoice and thank you for your word, which is so clear. Father, it is a word to us today, not just to Israel. And Lord, I pray we would not be distressed or alarmed by those who hate us or by other circumstances, because they are all from you, and ultimately you will judge them, and you will save us. You will be faithful. Lord, let us hear the words you have said. In Jesus' name, amen.